Well, it's good to be with you all tonight uh, and my welcome to that of Abe's. Uh, if you're joining us uh, for the first time or you're feeling new, uh, it's wonderful to have you with us. I hope that you find tonight a blessing for you. Please come up and say hi to me afterwards. I'd love to meet you. I'll introduce yourself to people around you. Uh, it'd be good to get to know one another better. And I thought I'd pray again before uh, we get into this part of God's word. Father, we give you thanks for your word and we thank you uh, that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And we ask now that as we come before uh, this part of uh, Isaiah, that you'll be challenging us and comforting us and by your spirit to speak to our hearts. Amen. Well, I'm keen to ask whether you think of yourself as an optimist or a pessimist. Maybe a better question would be if people who know you well would describe you as an optimist or a pessimist, are you one of those people who will always cling to the positive no matter how dire the situation? Or maybe you're the person who finds it very difficult to see the positive in any situation. I want to begin our time today uh, addressing those people who might find that they suffer what I'm calling today, I've made up this kind of phrase I think, optimism fatigue. Uh, that is, they might not be pessimists, but they might find constant positivity quite tiring and draining. Uh, more specifically, I want to address that fatigue that we might feel when it comes to ideas of optimism surrounding the Christian faith, our faith. That is, the fatigue that we might feel when we hear another passage or sermon on how joyful we're supposed to be feeling Yet we feel like the joy we're supposed to feel doesn't square with the reality uh, that we're experiencing. We are continuing this short Advent series looking at some of the passages from the prophet Isaiah, written almost 800 years before the birth of Jesus. And one of the features of the book of Isaiah is there's this uh, alternating pattern between messages of judgment and messages of hope, messages of darkness, messages of light, of, of destruction, renewal. And as you read through the book of Isaiah, uh, depending on which particular passage you read, you might be find yourself full of pessimism or full of optimism about the world that we live in. I actually think that duality, that uh, alternating between the darkness and the light, negative and the positive, I think that's an intentional uh, and deliberate uh, way it's written. Of course it is, it's God's word, but we can see that uh, there's an intentionality, I think, to help us comprehend the hope that is in the scriptures, we need to understand the context of that hope. That is, the messages of hope come to a world and into a world that is not a different to the reality of the world that we live in. Uh, the messages of hope are entrenched in the grit and the grime of the world that we live in. So what I think we have in the passage before us today is what I'm going to call an antidote to our optimism fatigue, if that's the right way of thinking about it. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 9, the first seven verses, one of the most famous hope passages in the Bible, one we hear a lot at Christmas time. But I don't want to jump straight into that passage at the risk of exacerbating optimism fatigue and making this passage uh, like a bit of a Christmas sugar hit verse. You know those verses that you can, they can be a great, you know, pick you up in the moment, you know, Unto us a child is born, you go, Bill, that would make a great Christmas card and you, you know, string it up and you put a bit of glitter around it and stuff like that and then you feel really great for a few weeks and then a few weeks later you just feel like oh, you go into a bit of a slump. It's a bit like a sugar hit, you know, a bit of a high. 
these verses in chapter 9 are supposed to be understood in a context. They're a picture of a glorious, glorious future. They're not a sugar hit. Because chapter 8 is the context which I think builds it and shapes it. And it's quite bleak. Isaiah the prophet is condemning the people of Judah under King Ahaz who have not been seeking God. And the message is really clear. The darkness is only going to get darker the longer people do not turn to the Lord. We see there in chapter 8 verse 20, if they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. They'll wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they're famished, they'll become enraged. And looking upward, will curse their king and their God. They'll look towards the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction. And they'll be driven into thick darkness. So there's a bleak description of the world uh, that is continually seeking to turn their back and walk away from the Lord. But how is Isaiah the prophet meant to live around in such a world of darkness? And we find ourselves in a world in many ways in darkness. How is Isaiah to live in this world? Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I'll wait for him. Now, I don't think we're very good at waiting. (laughs) If you're anything like me, it's quite hard to wait. There's the trivial kind of waiting that we find hard, waiting in traffic, you know, waiting in a queue at a checkout. You know, that feeling where, you know, if you waited just a little bit longer, every second that passes, you just find yourself getting more and more, becoming a person you didn't even know you were. You know, that, you know, shaking. Just something's taking a little bit longer than it's supposed to. And that rage starts to build. We're not very good at waiting. Or something more serious, maybe waiting for test results, medical results. Maybe waiting for interest rates to drop. Waiting reminds us that we are not in control of our circumstances. And particularly when we live in a world surrounded by a kind of darkness. As Christians, we are called to be patient people, people who wait on the Lord. And particularly in our situation, waiting on the Lord's return. It's a little different to Isaiah's waiting. And our waiting, of course, doesn't mean sleeping or inactivity or passivity. It means a disposition of waiting, being strong and secure in the darkness of the world we live in because we are people who wait on the Lord and we trust in his promises. Well, that's a very brief and important little bit of context to chapter 9 that we see the glorious promises spelled out in chapter 9. And for the pessimist, perhaps, it's, too, it's a future that is a bit too good to be true in some ways full of so much positivity and optimism. Have a look at just some of those descriptions there uh, in verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will bring honour to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. We begin with a promise of the end of gloom for those in distress now we think of the world today and almost the exact same geography is there's an incredible amount of distress that is going on there 
uh, in that part of the world. We think of horrific things that have happened in the last couple of months. And over history, horrific things. There is great distress in that part of the world, but regardless of where we live, we all know the experience of gloom. Uh, We might be in the middle of it now. We might be feeling it right now. We might be feeling we have loved ones who are trapped in a world of gloom and distress. We might feel we're trapped in a world of gloom and distress. And the promise here is that there'll be no more of this. No more feelings of despondency, of worthlessness, of melancholy, of distress. Why? We see the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. The promise is that those living in darkness will see the light. Now, I can't help but think of the scene in the movie from the Blues Brothers, if you know that, where Jake has an epiphany and uh, he sees the light. He's in a church. He says, I see the light. And there's this glow, right, that forms around him. And, it's a, and, and you think, oh, gee, he's, he's got some great relationship with the divine. No, he just has this epiphany. He wants to get the band back together and go on a tour. But he's seen the light, and that kind of image of saying, someone saying, I've seen the light, do you see the light? I've seen the light. It's almost like this moment of just complete clarity, of clarity of life's purpose and direction. And when you say you've seen the light, it's almost like there's this glow around you where everything just has, every, life is just suddenly makes sense and everything, almost like you're untouchable. There's this almost a sense of that's the kind of what it means to the, the kind of thing on view when you see this passage here. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. And some of the descriptions there you see in verse 3, there's this kind of, you can understand the expectation that these promises are just so magnificent. You've enlarged the nation, increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. There's this clarity, this joy. I've seen the light. Now, over the years, we've had those times of drought, of floods, of fires, and farmers in New South Wales. The idea at rejoicing at the harvest has many times felt like a pipe dream, a fairy tale. Too good to be true, this kind of rejoicing at the harvest. But this is the kind of joy that is promised in this passage, and it starts to build. The vision and the promise builds and builds It's not the end of the promise. It's also a promise about the end of slavery and oppression in verse 4. You've shattered the oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders and the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. Now, we don't have to do too much soul searching to realize that we are all at times can behave and live like slaves at times and also like slave masters at other times. Slaves to the expectations of others, our work colleagues, our boss, our parents, our friends, our children. Perhaps slaves most significantly to our own expectations of ourselves, our dreams, our ambitions, our sense of identity. We can be a slave to that. We can also be slave masters at times, using people to achieve our goals, our ambitions, treating people like projects, means to an end rather than treating people as God's precious image bearers. And the promise here in this glorious vision, an end 
of literal slavery and of the burdensome yoke, the rod that scolds. But again, the vision gets even better. Verse 5, it's not just the end of slavery, but the end and the removal of warfare. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. The promise here is the destruction of instruments of war. So you imagine like we've had nuclear weapons since, the, since World War II and, you know, and it's been very hard for the, the, the countries for the nuclear non-proliferation treaties. It's been very hard for countries who actually have nuclear weapons just to say, okay, we're just going to chuck them out. Right? We're going to get rid of them. Imagine if America just said, okay, you know, we are so confident of the peace of the world in the future. We are just going to, we're just going to put them all in the bin. We're going to chuck out our tanks, our aircraft carriers, our nuclear weapons. If someone did that, you think, don't do that. You don't live in that kind of world. the risk of sounding like uh, John Lennon, imagine if we knew that there would never be another war. Imagine what the global political climate would be like if we thought and we knew there would never be another war. Now, in many ways, John Lennon indeed was a dreamer, as his lyrics (laughs) suggest, because he had no real reason to hope for a better future. Basically, the basis of his hope was hoping that people's collective imagination would be enough to trigger a worldwide change of heart from selfishness to selflessness. He's a dreamer, but this passage isn't about empty dreams and empty visions. It's about promises. And the prophecy starts now to get very concrete about how this too-good-to-be-true promise is going to be achieved. It's going to be achieved through a gift Specifically through a child, verse 6, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. Uh, One of my fond memories growing up was summer holidays at North Avoca Beach at my grandmother's holiday house. We'd spend a a couple of weeks there amongst uh, all the different families over the summer holidays, and we'd do that every year. And it was a a kind of a block back from the beach. You'd have to cross a road go through a little pathway and then you'd hit the beach but then the beach was about you know about three or four hundred meters from the flags and so we'd have our summer holiday routine where we'd get up in the morning we'd go to the beach sound would be very hot we'd have our boogie boards our umbrellas our buckets and spades our towels and all this kind of stuff and all of us i was one of four uh kids and uh we'd we'd walk uh, to the beach with all that stuff and we'd hit the sand and the sand would be hot and <laughs> we'd all just drop our stuff and then run you know run run to the flags and my dad would pick up everything and it'd be like this ruffalo kind of thing. <laughs> you know just huge you just have all the the boogie boards the towels and i just still remember this image as summer after summer i'd look back and there'd be this silhouette of this kind of walking across the sand as we're running and dropping everything there's that what i love about that image is kind of there's this idea of the child is born and the government will be on his shoulders we can drop the burden of having to rule the world. We don't have to carry it anymore. This child is going to come and take up all these responsibilities and burdens and ruling the government of this world will come on his shoulders. And then we get a description of this ruler and he really is the perfect ruler. 
verse 6, what kind of ruler? The perfect ruler, verse 6, wonderful counsellor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now we can skim over those verses quite quickly. We know them at Christmas time, but let's briefly consider what each of those names might point to. We can unpack each of them quite a lot if we wanted to, but we don't have time to do that tonight. The wonderful counsellor, we see the ruler with the perfect wisdom. Mighty God, the ruler with the perfect power. Eternal Father. Now that's not, I don't think, a Trinitarian reference there. I think that Eternal Father is a description of the care of this ruler. Prince of Peace. Perfect reconciliation. That's the kind of ruler that you want, right? Wisdom. Power. Care. Perfect reconciliation and peace. This child that is gifted to us is not just described as the perfect ruler, but is the one that will have the perfect reign. Unending in its reach, perfect in justice and righteousness. We see there in verse 7, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He'll reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. Now, isn't this just too good to be true? Now, we talked a little bit about the optimism fatigue at the beginning, right? We can read these verses and still find ourselves feeling a little bit like, well, this is another nice passage, another nice Christmas memory verse, perhaps, another passage that might look very beautiful in calligraphy, <laughs> something like that. Here's Glitterfron. Here you go, look at this, treasure this, open an envelope. Now, we can look at these verses, we can think, I can't help but feel very flat when I look at the world around, when I look at, the, look at myself, even when I look at our church sometimes, we can feel this just doesn't square with the reality of the world that I'm living in. And we can feel that, uh, can we sometimes... Uh, there are times when it's very tricky for us to sustain being so positive all the time, being optimistic as Christians about the future. But I want us to finish our time zooming in on a very key verse that is so important that, we've skimmed, that we haven't looked at yet. But it helps us think, how is this future promised reality going to come about? The perfect ruler, the perfect reign, the end of war, the end of slavery, the end of oppression, all these things. How is it going to come about? Through determined prayerfulness? Through passionate worship? I'm so glad that's not the, reason, the way it's going to come about because we would have very good reason to give up or burn out if that was the way. The key verse is there in verse 7. How's it going to come about? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Not our zeal, God's zeal. This is where God is putting his energy, so to speak. This is what God has been doing throughout history. This is what we can see has happened in history. And there's this beautiful uh, scene in the opening of Matthew's gospel where this passage just appears 
describing the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And, the, the, and today's passage is quoted. That Jesus, in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 4, heard that John had been put into prison. He withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Sound familiar? To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, we got that quote, right? And it follows immediately in verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It is the zeal of God's plans and purposes that he sent his son Jesus into the world to bring light to a dark world. And what does it look like to live in that light? To, for want of a better word, to catch the wave of our Lord's zeal. What does it look like? What does it mean to be people of the light? Two things as we finish up. The first is repent. In light of Jesus' preaching, we see living in the light begins with a call to repent, to turn away from ourselves and to turn to Jesus. Now, when we're living in darkness, when we don't want to live for Jesus, when we're living uh, in that stubbornness of heart, the idea of repentance sounds judgmental, legalistic, religious, hardly liberating stuff. But if you ask anybody who has experienced true repentance, a true turning away from themselves and turning to the Lord, they will tell you how liberating that experience is. Like chains coming off, like a veil being removed. So that's the first thing we see. Living in the light, being people of the light, is to turn jesus repent and the second thing we learn is it's about waiting learning what it means to wait we are waiting for the restoration of all things we are waiting in a very different way than isaiah had to wait we're at a different point in history but we are waiting we're not passive but we're waiting entrusting this world and history not to our zeal, but the zeal of the Lord Almighty, who will accomplish this. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks that you have indeed come into the world in the person of your Son, wonderful Counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We thank you that you have brought this light into our dark world. We ask that you'll help us to be people who do wait, who are people who are patient, who know that it is your zeal that will accomplish your purposes. Help us to be people who turn away from depending on ourselves and turn to you. And help us to know what this looks like in our lives, in the day-to-day. -day. Help us.
Help us to reach out to others for help. Help us to support one another in this. And help us to experience the liberating freedom that comes from being people of the light.